A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Hello, friends and foes. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 14. Today, we're going to have quite a treat. We're going to be talking about the theology of divine pathos. So it's going to be a good one. We're primarily going to be interacting with the work entitled The Prophets, which if I'm not mistaken, it's a two-volume work. But as of late, they, they put them together into one book by Abraham Heschel. And uh, it's going to be a good one. You're going to be happy that you came to listen today, I think. <laughs> All right, Ben, uh, why are we talking about this? Okay, well, let's, let's put it this way. Um, this is the Experiential Theology podcast, one of many podcasts named Experiential Theology. And one of the things that, that is uh, worth considering is the human experience of suffering. And I'm not sure if I can give a full history of this, but at least in the past um, 50, 60, 70 years, at least since the Second World War, there's been a move in theology to appreciate the idea that God shares in the sufferings of humans. And I think that if you were to put a name on that in the Christian circles, you would you would point to Jürgen Moltmann. Mm -hmm. uh, and in particular, in his book, um, The Trinity and the Kingdom, I have some notes here from when I read through that a while ago. He, uh, he, he talks a little bit about how... Uh, in patristic theology, or, or what became classical theology, there's this idea that God is impassable, that God is not affected or not vulnerable to um, suffering in any way, uh, among other things. And, and this is taken as obvious in many theological circles. It's taken as a bit of an axiom, the idea that God doesn't suffer. Um, mm -hmm. That's what creatures can do, um, but God doesn't suffer. And, and, and yeah, and um, I'm not sure at the practical level, this works itself out in lots of ways. One way it works itself out is this idea that salvation is to be, is to be free from vulnerability. We spent a long time talking about that in this, on our, on our discussion of the book, this life, where the idea mm -hmm. was that religious instinct is to escape yeah. from vulnerability and how this is not necessarily a healthy uh, way to build your religion. But, uh, but that is, that's kind of the, been the default assumption for many people for a long time. So you know about Moltmann. Why don't we talk about him very briefly? Like what, what does Moltmann have to say about suffering of God and the cross? And, and why is he so stubborn about that? Yes. So uh, Jürgen Moltmann uh, was born in Germany. And I think he was drafted into the war, actually. So he was in the war for a few months. Eventually, he surrendered himself. He surrendered himself to the enemy. And then he was a prisoner of war for something like five years. Eventually, the war ended, of course, and they allowed him to go back to Germany. But uh, he, even though he was in the war for just a, a brief time, he was able to experience the death of loved ones, literally right next to him being obliterated to pieces through bombs 
and he struggled with survivor's guilt all his life. But I would say that the, the bigger struggle was always just seeing his nation, Germany, which is supposed to be a Christian nation, really become a, a, a bit of a, not a bit, a, a huge form of the Antichrist because it killed millions of Jewish people and other uh, mar marginalized uh, communities as well. And he just couldn't believe, I mean, how Germany came to commit all these atrocities. Jürgen uh, Moltmann himself was an atheist, but that experience just, I think, brought him to despair and depression. And so he's in jail for years. And some Christians reached out to him. And so he talks about how he started reading the Psalms. He liked the book of Psalms because, I mean, he felt like he could relate. And then he read the gospel according to St. Mark. And he talks about how when he read that account of the gospel, he really felt like God spoke to him. And he says that he never found Christ, but that Christ found him. And in that moment, said to Bowman, I am a fellow sufferer with you. I am with you. I'm your brother. And we will get through this. And so that was Jürgen Bowman's experience. And uh, his plan, I think, was either to become a mathematician or a, or, or, a, or a physics professor of some sort, but he ended up becoming a theologian instead because that experience changed the rest of his life. He is still alive, but he's, I believe, 94 years old. He has a new book coming out next month. He's still writing at 94. And so, yeah, he has become an emblem of sorts of what uh, postmodern Protestant theology theology can be he is famous obviously for his many many works but uh i would say the main thing he's famous for is a really bringing a platform to liberation theologians like he was intimately involved in translating a lot of liberation theology to german and also for what you just said uh rethinking god's relationship to creation so he is sometimes attacked, even mocked, for not truly understanding the classical position, being a bit of a simpleton. It's more complicated than that mold line. But I think largely he is correct, bottom line. Maybe on some technical details, he may be wrong. Maybe he is. But I, I really feel like he's really giving us the right challenge. Are we to view God as aloof, as indwelling this higher sphere above suffering and concerns? Or are we to, with Mormon, maybe say that in the incarnation, God is bringing the ultimate secular move, if you will, because he is embracing creation, death, suffering, just living with all of us, ultimate solidarity, right? So that is what Molman brings to the table. And uh, he is Trinitarian, Reformed, a Universalist, uh, a Marxist, just you know, a theologian that has so many good qualities and so many good tools. But the thing he is most famous for is, of course, his work on the Trinity. He is what people would call a social Trinitarian. But uh, a, 
beyond and above that, he is somebody that says that God suffers, that God suffers. He himself was a student of the, of the work of Abraham Heschel, and he, uh, he devotes uh, a good amount of his work towards uh, building on top of the theology of divine pathos in a Christocentric way. And that is more or less how I came to appreciate uh, the work of Abraham Heschel when Moldman pointed me back to him as the inspiration and the, uh, the ground for much of his work. Okay, good. I was just thinking, um, given Moltmann's longevity, we should call him uh, the beloved disciple of the 20th century. <laughs> He's still with us. Yeah. I pre-ordered his book. I, I'm excited. It's coming out, I think, the week after Easter. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. So in, in Trinity and the Kingdom, which is Moltmann's book, he identifies Abraham Heschel as... I think he says he's um, one of the first, one of the, he, here's the quote, he and writes, one of the first people to explicitly contest the theology of the apathetic God was Abraham Heschel. He called the theology of the Old Testament prophets, a theology of the divine pathos. That's our topic here. We want to talk about the theology of the divine pathos uh, as Abraham Heschel describes it in his book, The Prophets. And for a bit more context, you will find that um, well, classical the classical theism or classical theology is old. It's it's been um, it's come down to us from the patristic period through the Middle Ages up to the Reformation, and in many ways it continued past the Reformation. Like Protestants, when when Protestantism began, it was not a wholesale rejection of everything that the Catholic Church believed. It was really more of a shifting of the authority on which we believe things, but many of the actual beliefs were untouched. So the Trinity didn't really change much, for instance. Um, hmm. And perhaps, and this is a research topic, but I, I kind of doubt that the classical theism of the Reformation is much different than the classical theism of the, of the Catholic Church at first, although they diverge over time, given 500 years. But anyway, here we are. We've got this classical theism. A lot of people in the 20th century and the 21st century are not satisfied with it. Um, one of the, and, and as you said, with, with um, Moltmann, it's the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, mm -hmm. the, the cry for a theodicy, for some kind of justification for how God being all powerful and all knowing and impassable and allegedly totally good, how this could all be, how this could all happen at the same time, how these things could all be true at once. This is the call for theodicy. Is, is there any, basically theodicy is the question, um, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Uh, and often, like, has not the judge of the earth done what is right? Because we're looking back on the past as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so classical theism, it's on the rocks. Terrible things have happened. Theodicy is called for, and classical theism is just not going to cut it for many people. So a lot of people, well, not a lot, but some of the approaches that people take are to go into open theism, Open theism is roughly the idea that um, we're going to redefine divine omniscience so God doesn't actually know the future. And maybe along the lines that maybe the future isn't even knowable, so we can't even expect God to know the future because it doesn't exist. It's open. This is where the word open comes from. This is thought to be a way to ease the problem of theodicy. Mm -hmm. 
for better or for worse. Okay. Um, process theology goes a little bit further and, and uh, I don't want to miss describe it, but I'm, I'm afraid that the last time I really thought hard about it was about 12 years ago <laughs> on, a, on a seminary paper that I wrote as a fundamentalist. So it probably won't be very fair, <laughs> but yeah. Process theology is roughly the idea that that God is evolving with the world, that the world and God have a somewhat symbiotic relationship where God influences the world and the world influences God over time. I think it's properly described as panentheism as opposed to pantheism or, or theism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, again, it's attempting to basically take all of the axioms of classical theology and rethink them or loosen them in a way that's more humanitarian or, and they claim that it's more scientific, but I'm, as a scientist, like I don't really feel much comfort on that front when I read um, process theology myself. Okay, there's a better way. The theology of divine pathos, that's what we're here to talk about. Abraham Heschel draws on the Old Testament prophets. They belong to him as a Jewish theologian in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. And he draws out a theology for the 21st century and the 20th century, post-Holocaust, post-crisis, that really makes a lot of sense. So where should we start talking about this then? All right. Why don't we talk about just in general about this phenomenon of the prophets? I remember when I was in college, I took a Western history class and it was in an auditorium. We had like, I don't know, 300, 400 students. Uh, all of us freshmen and fresh women, I guess. Uh, and I just remember, I remember the professor lecturing. He was a very good lecturer, I remember. But I remember how much he relished that one week where maybe for two days, he dealt with this phenomenon of the Hebrew prophets in the history of the Hebrew people. And you could just tell that he relished and that he enjoyed talking about this phenomenon of the prophets. So this is a phenomenon that uh, people pay attention to it, not just in religion, but just in history, really. Who were these people? Why are they about? And why were they so weird? That is what we're here for. <laughs> so That's who it. are the prophets? How would you characterize the prophets? Then? Okay, so... At, at a, um, there's almost like an archetype here that you can point to in, in the scriptures. You have people who work in like a priestly role where they serve as the organizers or um, administrators of sacraments, whether those be sacrifices or, or in, the, in, the, in the Christian centuries, um, whether they be the Eucharist or, or whatever or baptism. But anyway, in the old, in the old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, we've got, we've clearly got priests and descriptions of what priests do. And they sort of institutionalize the religious ceremonies or behavior of the, of the people. Uh, and this is work that, uh, that needs to be done, I guess. The prophets have a, um, how can I put this? Well, let me just read a quotation. Um, Abraham Heschel, this is how he describes it. He says, a prophet is an iconoclast, challenging the apparently holy, revered, and awesome. Beliefs cherished as certainties, institutions endowed with supreme sanctity. He exposes 
has scandalous pretensions. So if you think of a church setting, like the, the priest, that's like the pastor at the front, trying to make sure everything's going smoothly. And the prophet is the person who sort of walks in in the middle of the service, dressed in rags and starts shouting at everybody. <laughs> they have, they don't, they don't respect what is considered to be um, sacred. They have something more important to say, and they're not willing to wait for the appropriate, um, for the approved venues to say these things. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm looking at another quote here. He says, uh, this is the marvel of a prophet's work. In his words, the invisible God becomes audible. Okay. So this is what the prophets did. They spoke the word of God to the people of Israel. Uh, in, in one of the books I've read in the past, I forgot where, somebody called the prophets covenant enforcers. And I think to some extent, it kind of fits. Because, I mean, what are the prophets doing? They're always calling Israel back to covenant faithfulness. And for the most part, are charging them with covenant unfaithfulness, meaning that they're not, they're not uh, keeping their part of the bargain with the contract or with the covenant that they have with God, right? They're not walking in justice. They're not treating the poor right they're not they're doing unjust things and god is calling them to repent and that is what a lot of the work entails for the prophets yeah you say covenant enforcer when i heard that i was like no that doesn't quite work because they're almost always ignored right so they don't actually have any power to enforce anything mm -hmm. yeah what they are is a nuisance they they take this sense of security and comfort that people have and ruin it by by saying it's not good enough it's not really true it's not really faithful so they're they they, they have this role of exposing the things that we would perhaps prefer not to talk about yeah yeah um let me read another quote here. Um, this is really important. Um, so Abraham Heschel writes, the prophet disdains those for whom God's presence is a comfort and security. To him, it is a challenge, an incessant demand. And now we're starting to get into the experience of being a prophet. So for many people, God and faith in God is peace and comfort. Mm -hmm. um, but the prophet lives in the presence of this consuming fire. God is a threat. <laughs> God is, is, is a, at the very least, uh, a sort of a blinding ideal that makes everything that we might be satisfied with seem unsatisfactory all of a sudden. Um, and so the, the, the Hebrew prophets, they're living on a different wavelength they're living on a different plane than the reg than the regular people that they live among they see things that other people don't see they feel things that other people don't feel the comfort that everybody enjoys they regard it as an abomination 
And this is why they're so unpopular because who wants that kind of person around really? So. Yes, absolutely. Okay, uh, let's talk about pathos. Let's maybe clarify these terms because some people may not necessarily know them. I didn't really learn them until I was in college, I think. Pathos, ethos, logos. All right. So pathos, what does pathos refer to? In one word. In one word? <laughs> uh, I think feeling is a good word. Yeah, so right? another, good, another word would be concern mm -hmm. or care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Since we're, we're speaking about a message here, I mean, the message itself, we would say is the logos, right? Especially if it was written. The pathos is like the delivery, how you read it, how you pronounce things, the, the fear, the awe. I mean, the emotional delivery, the weight that it carries on you, I would say. That's the pathos. The logos is the, the content of the message, right? All right, well, let's work yeah. with this. Go ahead. I said, yeah, we'll, we'll work with that. I think that works. So here towards the end of chapter one, he makes a, he makes a concerted effort in helping us to see the following quote. He says, this divine pathos is the key to inspired prophecy. So in other words, if we want to understand this phenomenon of the prophets, what we have to understand is that the prophets are people who are connected to the heart of God. They see God, quote unquote, right? They hear God, but above all things, they feel what God feels when he looks at Israel. So they are connected to the pathos of God, and that's why their message and the delivery, the delivery of their message is so extreme, right? They are angry, they are hurt, they are enraged at times with what they see going on in their societies, with the kings, with the priests at the temple. And they believe that that is what God feels and they are manifesting that to the people. Yeah, that's that's basically it. And uh, so, when we talk about a theology of the divine pathos, we are we are leaving classical theology behind, in a sense. So, a cl in classical theology, God doesn't feel, and God certainly doesn't feel pain, um, and sort of emotions like anger or disappointment. Um, th these are not available to the god of classical theism which really opens god that god up to a lot of criticism as a concept but on abraham heschel's perspective what he's saying is like guess what we have in our scriptures in his scriptures we've got people who claim to feel what god feels not just to know the facts that god knows but to actually feel what god feels and that means that god feels they care about what God cares about. And that means that God cares about things. 
that God is not detached in, in the in sort of the, the way the classical doctrine can be can be interpreted to mean. And anyway, this is a big new. This is big news for theology. This is big news for for how we do theology. Um, and it, and honestly, it's an experiential theology because what we're saying is that we can know the character of the God. Uh, we can know the character of the God who cares, in so much as we share in that care for those things that God cares about. That our experience of this God is the prophetic experience of sharing in the divine pathos. That we share in the divine pathos. That is the experience that undergirds this experiential theology of the divine pathos and that's very different from a from a faith which has often been preached i mean i've heard this where where really emotions are treated as unreliable um and and of course emotions can be misleading but just because something is not 100 percent reliable doesn't mean it's useless it can be it can be helpful and correct sometimes um yeah, so I, I I'm thinking in particular of um, of let's say anger. I think that I think that many pastors will preach in such a way that people will get the impression that you should never be angry. Mm -hmm. But sometimes God is angry. At least at least the God of the divine pathos, uh, and you can share in that anger. <laughs> it's not the dark side. Uh, it's it's the appropriate response for people who are for lack of a better word in tune with god to be angry at the way things are in the world in, in many cases mm -hmm. yes so that is something that the prophets are known for being very passionate about justice and also very passionate delivery and methods for bringing their message to the people even if by and large few of them were ever truly heard. Okay, uh, there's another section here where Heschel explains why the prophet has to be passionate. And I love how he connects it to the Shema. Okay, let me read this. He says, the prophet is not a mouthpiece, but a person, not an instrument, but a partner, an associate of God. Emotional detachment would be understandable only if there were a command which required the suppression of emotion, forbidding one to serve God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. God, we are told, asks not only for works, for action, but above all, for love, awe, and fear. So I love how he points back to the Shema, right? Which says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So he says, that's the Shema. That's really, really important. That's what we're supposed to do. And so the prophet cannot function in a way that disregards that central command. His ministry his witness his action has to be passionate it has to involve not just his mind but all of his heart all of his soul his entire inner being has to be poured into his work so this is why the prophet 
has to be passion. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Um, another aspect of this is that I think that we will often we often think of prophecy as fortune telling. So, and this is a mistake. And this book and Heschel's work really corrects this. Prophecy is not about telling us what what's going to happen in the future. It's not like a seven day forecast on the weather. Um, prophecy is when somebody interprets the world the way that God interprets the world and then speaks up about it. Mm -hmm. That they feel the same frustration that God feels towards human resistance and they speak up about it. So prophecy is really talking about the present for the most part. It's talking about how God feels about the present, how God interprets the present. And I mean, as, as theologians or as, as religious people or as Christians, I mean, that's the best we can do is we want to interpret the world the way that God interprets it. Now that may seem naive because you think, oh, the best we can do is have a subjective opinion and a subjective perspective. And that's true. Like we are subjects and that's the best we can do. But the best we can do is align our subjectivity with the divine subjectivity is to seek for our subjectivity to draw near to the divine subject and see things the way that God sees them. Um, and I, and I, I'm not sure exactly how to put this, but um, over the past few years, I've read, I've read a handful of, of books on theology, and and sometimes they want to downplay uh, this personhood of God, this idea that God has a perspective, that God is an agent that acts. Uh, I won't name any names, but <laughs> that I've even seen this um, in in some circles where, like in 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 Bardian circles where God is wholly other. And it's sort of a little bit impious to say that God is a subject with a perspective that I can, when I, that I can use the analogy of a person for God, someone who has a pathos, who acts, who interprets, who feels. Some people think that, that def, that's an anthropomorphism, that I'm putting something on God by, by thinking of God that way. Um, and that it's naive okay well in the theology of divine pathos um there are there are people who through their sympathy with the divine pathos and we call many of these people the prophets have manifested the character of god have manifested the agency of god have manifested the concern and the pathos of God. So unless that came from within, like there's something behind that. Uh, and from the experiential theology perspective, we can become those people ourselves. <laughs> we can actually become among those who have a sympathy with the divine pathos. This is, this is arguably what Christian discipleship is. Um, it's becoming someone who in the Roman five, five cents, someone uh, into whose heart has been poured, has been poured out um, the love of God. So the love of God poured in, out into our heart by the spirit that he's given us. That love of God is the divine pathos. It's, it's for the world around us and to interpret and interpret our world that we're in from that perspective. I think I've been speaking for a while here, but 
Oh, that's uh, yeah. good. I mean, to me, it's interesting how one question or one struggle elicits different responses, right? And I think there are good pastoral reasons for this and even individual reasons. So for example, uh, I know that people have, ex have told me that once they embrace a theology that affirms that God indeed feels and mourns for what we suffer, that that really enables them to experience God, to continue to have faith and move forward. I have also heard others say that embracing the, the classical theist God helps them because they feel like when they embrace the classical God that is not affected, they feel like uh, they have a refuge from suffering. Like suffering stops here with us and it goes no further. And it is a refuge to them to know that God is invulnerable. And that one day too, they will be invulnerable. So it's, it's interesting how, again, the same question, the same struggle can lead to uh, opposite results. But uh, yeah, I, I think we have to, I mean, we don't have to, there's always choice, but I think we're best uh, citing on the side of, yes, of course, God cares and God feels and God is enraged at injustice and he wants his love and his compassion to rule the world. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I think so. Absolutely. I think I see I see the re like the retreat to classical theism as an attempt for some kind of theological morphine just to numb yourself to the to the world that we actually live in. I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. I think it, I think that like the, the spirit of God is, is, is right here around us all the time, inviting us to see, to see and feel what God feels about the world around us. And we just can't bear to say yes, because it's too painful. The, the limit is our ability to cooperate, is our willingness to cooperate. That's the only limit here. Um, and it's just too painful. So none of, very few of us can bear up to it, uh, to, can do justice to this opportunity. Um, but I, I, I don't, I don't recommend, um, retreating into, into this religious instinct towards invulnerability. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm really going to plant my flag on divine vulnerability because I think that, that it, I think it does justice to the to the human experience um, and to the gospel as I understand it, and it it comports with the theology of the cross as opposed to the theology of triumph. This is constantly a fork in the road for us all, uh, man. Now, this we're, we are talking about a theology developed by a Jewish theologian, so we can't really speak of it as a theology of the cross. We can't speak of this in trinitarian terms. Um, we can't even speak of it in 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 terms of in Christological terms either. This theology belongs to Abraham Heschel and we, and we should just take it for what it is. He's describing what the God of the Hebrew prophets must have been like, given what the Hebrew prophets turned out to be like. That's, that's what his project is. And 
And, uh, and I'm quite happy to say that this is the best portrait of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that I've ever seen. And then I'm also quite happy to say that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Great. Excellent. Well, I think, uh, I think we have pretty much covered more or less what a prophet is, what they're about, and what their importance of their message is. This theology of divine pathos, I think it's so important. It's so important. It really is. I should clarify something, though, before we go, before we finish up, before finishing up. Um, so I, I would like to try to, and I think that this is faithful to Heschel, um, I'd like to interpret pathos and divine pathos and sort of human sympathetic pathos in not entirely emotional terms. Uh, so maybe I'm backpedaling here, but I want to account for the fact that people come in different shapes and sizes, and that includes their brain chemistry and the sort of emotional responses and their mental health, right? Um, mm -hmm. And that often we do the right thing, feeling different ways about it at the time, right? Sometimes we can offer aid and comfort to those who need it, feeling good about it. And sometimes reluctantly, like, against our, our feelings and against our instincts. Um, and so, the, so the, the moral, in terms of right and wrong, is a bit different from, from sort of the, the feelings that we have. And so I don't think we can really reduce pathos to feelings. For me, it, it's more at the level of interpretation and valuing. And, and valuing will in turn sort of guide our feelings in the long run, but I see them as sort of downstream from what we value. Um, if we value what God values, we're going to have to get angry about some things that we see. <laughs> but it's not the anger directly that we're obtaining from this sympathy with the divine pathos. It's the valuing that we're obtaining, which will lead to different emotions um, and will lead to us sharing in the vulnerability that God has and our concern for the things that God's concerned about. I don't know what you think about that, but um, I think that that's a helpful qualification. Yeah, I think that is good. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I appreciate about the prophets is that unlike, let's say, maybe the philosophers, right? A, a bunch of philosophers, they're not really known for being intellectual giants, but they are known for being people who were inwardly touched by what they saw. And I think that's something good for us to aim for, to pray for, that we be people who see and are inwardly touched to varying degrees, of course. We need to be touched. We need to, we need to care. It, it can't just be a mental intellectual exercise, our theology. It has to, it has to change how we see the world and what happens when we see the world. Yes, yes, and uh, I feel like um, I feel like experiential theology really should have that flavor. Experiential theology is trying to is trying to describe uh, something that's got a foundation in experience, and so sympathy with the divine pathos that's a human experience that's attested to in these prophets, and and they just try to describe it. 
we have no reason to think that people trying to describe something will do a good job of describing it or will describe it in detail or will describe it in a consistent way. Descriptions are, are is a function of the of sort of the powers, the mental and verbal powers of the person who's trying to do the describing. But this capacity to experience this divine pathos, that's the thing that's really amazing in the prophets, as you're saying. And, um, and that's the thing that an experiential theology should value is an invitation to join in, uh, to grow a deeper sympathy with the divine pathos. And, and maybe one day the descriptions will be better over time. But uh, yeah, but with a classical perspective, what I fear is that, is that building a system, there's nothing wrong with a systematic theology per se, unless, it's like, unless it just turns out to be a big mirror that the theologian is holding up to their face. And they're just amazed at the system because they built it themselves. <laughs> so, they, so they're using this. this so I'm, I'm in math and physics and I read, I read math or physics papers all the time. I wish I did it more often, but often people come up with some, some idea and they're like, this is a beautiful idea. And I look at it and I think, well, that looks pretty ugly to me. The only reason it's beautiful is because they made it themselves. <laughs> because mm -hmm. People love their own creations and they just seem so natural and fitting. Yeah, the divine pathos is an alien influence that is not beautiful. It is ugly. It's actually a revelation of the ugliness of the world around us. Very different than pursuing uh, conceptual beauty and systematic um, consistency. Very different indeed. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Ben. Yeah, thanks. We'll see you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.